one of my uh, absolute favorite Muhammad Ali stories is a story about a time he was traveling somewhere on an airplane and the pilot comes over the loudspeaker and says, would all passengers please fasten their seatbelts because we are about to experience some pretty serious turbulence. And so the flight attendants were walking up and down the aisle, checking to see if the passengers were fastening their seatbelts. And one of the flight attendants saw that Muhammad Ali had not fastened his seatbelt. So she said to him, sir, would you please fasten your seatbelt? And he said back to her in typical Muhammad Ali fashion, Superman don't need no seatbelt. And she said back to him very quickly, Superman don't need no airplane either. Please fasten your seatbelt. Now, I love that story for a handful of reasons, but it is a remarkable reminder that none of us are supermen. We are all broken people living in a broken world with other broken people. Life is hard. Pain is real. We are far worse off than we think we are. The good news of the gospel is that even though we are far worse off than we think we are, God's amazing grace is infinitely greater than anything we could ever ask for or imagine. Uh, Some of you know this, and it was just mentioned a few minutes ago, but uh, I used to be a successful pastor. I was leading a large, famous church in my hometown of Fort Lauderdale, Florida. I was writing a book a year. I was on TV every week around the world. I was on the radio every day. I was traveling all over the country, speaking at conferences and churches and other large events. I mean, according to the world standards, I had everything. I had a great family. I had a successful career. I had notoriety. I had financial stability. I had influence. I had a good reputation. And then it all came crashing down, seemingly overnight. Two things I had come to believe were secure forever were my marriage, my 21-year marriage, and my career. And I lost both during the spring of 2015 due to my own sin and selfishness. My first marriage ended in divorce in part because I was unfaithful to my first wife and therefore I deserved to lose both the marriage and the ministry that God had given me. And because I was a public person, I lost it all very, very publicly. The whole world seemingly knew about my worst moment, my most embarrassing moment in life. But with those two losses, with the loss of my marriage and the loss of my ministry, came a thousand other losses. The loss of friendships, the loss of family, the loss of purpose, the loss of credibility, the loss of financial stability, the loss of hope, the loss of joy, the loss of opportunity, the loss of life as I knew it, really. Life went from feeling like a dream to feeling like a nightmare for me overnight. It seemed like everything I had in one fell swoop was gone overnight. I broke my own life. I broke my own family. I broke the hearts of the people who loved and trusted me, and I wanted to die. I literally wanted to die. I'm in the middle of seven children, 
And my mom, when I was little, nicknamed me Sunshine, which is not very cool at all. But she nicknamed me that because she said, every time you walk in a room, you brighten everything up. I mean, I have always always loved the sights and the sounds and the smells of life. I've never been suicidal. I've never been depressed. I've never experienced those things. Well, all of that changed for me in 2015. Losing everything in the way that I lost everything, the guilt, the shame, the embarrassment, the regret, all of those things were weighing on me so heavily that there was not a day that went by for nearly 18 months that I did not struggle profoundly with wanting to take my own life. I had never experienced that before, ever. For me, it seemed at that time in my life that death was preferable to life. How did I get to such a low place, such a low place that I actually wanted to die? Well, We typically don't know how deeply we depend on things to make life worth living until those things are gone. We just, we typically don't know what things or what people we depend on to make life worth living until those things are gone. I didn't realize it at the time, but my value, my security, my deepest sense of who I was, my identity was anchored to things like my success, my reputation, my position, my friends, my ability to lead, the encouragement I received, the opportunities I had, and so on. And because of this, because my identity was so deeply attached to those things, when those things were gone, I didn't just suffer grief and pain and shame and regret. I began suffering a massive, a severe identity crisis. Because without these things and without these people that I had depended on to make me feel valuable and important, I no longer knew who I was. I felt dead, therefore I might as well be dead. Now, it's almost impossible to know who your real friends are when you're at the top, when you have so much to offer. But when you're at the bottom and the only thing you have to offer people is liability, you discover pretty quickly who your friends are. I had a few of those. Um, Paul Zoll, who is a retired minister, was one of those people. And he walked me through the valley of the shadow of death a thousand times over. He was a mentor, a father figure, a friend. And at that time in my life, people were running away from me like the disciples running out of the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus needed them most. I mean, they were leaving in droves. And in some cases, I completely understood why they were leaving. In other cases, I was shocked. I thought that some of these people would be there with me, for me, no matter what, but they were gone. Well, as people were moving away from me, my friend Paul Zoll was moving toward me. And when I was at my absolute worst, I mean, I was ready to throw in the towel. I was ready to give up. I was ready to give in. I could not stand the fact that life felt the way that it felt. I was absolutely convinced that my best days were behind me, that I would never hope again, that I would never love life again, that I, everything that I had experienced for the first 40 years I was alive was gone forever. I was convinced Why continue to live life if it's going to be cloudy every single day, if it's going to be dreary every day? Hopelessness, when it plagues your life, makes you want to die. 
when you can see no light at the end of the tunnel, when you can't imagine that things could ever get better than this, it's tempting to want to die. And when I was at my absolute worst, when I was at my lowest, Paul's all said something to me that began to turn the tide. And I'll read it to you a couple of times because it literally turned the tide for me in such a way that made me think to myself, maybe God really is up to something here. Maybe God really does redeem. Maybe God really does restore. Maybe the very hope of restoration and the hope of redemption is enough to carry me through the rest of this day. He said this, the purpose behind the suffering you are going through is to push you into a new freedom from false definitions of who you are. I'll say it again, and then I'll explain it. The purpose behind the suffering you are going through is to push you into a new freedom from false definitions of who you are. You see, Paul knew me well enough to know that part of the reason it felt like the skin was being ripped off of my bones, part of the reason that I wanted to die Part of the reason that I did not want to live anymore is because I had so deeply attached my worth, my value, my significance, my identity to things and people that were infinitely smaller than Jesus that I was really in so many different ways, I'm, the false definitions of who I was were attached to these things. And he said, listen, God is in the business of setting the captives free. And even if that means that he has to expose all of the false gods and idolatry in your life, and it seems like he's killing you, he's actually making you free. He's actually saving your life. Um, so I, I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what you're currently losing. I don't know what your shattered dreams are. And if you haven't had any yet, you will. I don't know what you've suffered. I don't know what you're guilty of doing. I don't know your deepest fears. I don't know your insecurities. I don't know your secrets. I know we all have them. And I don't know your shame. But what I do know is this, no matter who you are, who you truly are has nothing to do with you whatsoever. How much you can accomplish, who you can become, what you've done or failed to do, how smart you are, what other people think of you, your behavior, good or bad, your strengths, your weaknesses, your family background, your education, the way you look, and so on and so forth. Who you truly are, your ultimate identity has nothing to do with you. Your identity is ultimately anchored in Jesus' accomplishment, not yours. His strength, not yours. His performance, not yours. His victory, not yours. In other words, and this is so important, you are not what you do. You are what Jesus has done for you. That's who you are. That's where your identity is ultimately anchored, fully and finally anchored. We are tempted every single day of our lives to anchor our identity, our worth, our value in a thousand things and people that are infinitely smaller than what Jesus has done for you. That temptation is all around us. And when we begin to build our lives on all of these God replacements, 
they will end up sinking under our feet. And you'll find yourself perhaps in a season of desperation and doubt and depression and loss and regret and guilt and shame undergoing the same massive identity crisis that I underwent if you build your life on anything smaller than who God is and what God has done for you in Jesus. You see, the foundation of Christianity is not our transformation, okay? It's not. The focus and the foundation of the Christian faith is not our transformation. It is Christ's substitution. And that is good news because if God's love and acceptance of me is based on my transformation, I'm in trouble. Okay, you're in trouble. If God's love and acceptance of you is based on your transformation, on your ability to clean things up, on your ability to get things right, on your ability to walk the line, on your ability to fly straight. If, your, if God's love and God's acceptance is based in any way, shape, or form on you and what you do, you're in trouble. That's why in Romans chapter 8, what I call the great eight, the Apostle Paul says, there is nothing in heaven and there is nothing on earth that can separate you from God's love. Nothing. Why? Because God's love for you is in no way dependent on you. It is dependent entirely and exclusively on what Jesus has done for you. So if you're a Christian, you live your life under a banner that reads, it is finished. Plain and simple, full stop. God doesn't love you more when you're doing good, and he doesn't love you less when you're doing bad, however we define good and bad. God's love for you, thankfully, has ultimately nothing to do with what we do or fail to do. It has everything to do with what Jesus has done for us. You see, I'm... I'm not the Christian that I ought to be. I mean, God does say, does he not be perfect? Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. I mean, every single one of us fails. I remember saying to a group of college students one time, a large group of college students in Pittsburgh, um, that because Jesus succeeded for you, you're free to fail. And uh, some guy came up to me afterwards, and he didn't like that, and he said, you just encouraged 2,000 college students to fail. And I was like, time out. First of all, I didn't encourage anybody to fail. These students were failing just fine before I walked in the door. I'm acknowledging the fact that they are failing, that they are falling short, and because God's love for us is ultimately dependent on what Jesus has done and not what we do, there is nothing we can do or fail to do that will ever tempt God to leave us or forsake us, ever. That is not what we typically hear. It's not, I grew up in uh, a Christian home, and I grew up going to church, and I grew up Um, I I just grew up in the Christian community, and I was under the impression that God's love for me was in some way, shape, or form dependent on how I acted, how I behaved. 
So if I was really disciplined and I would get up early in the morning and I would pray and I would read my Bible and I was nice to people all day long, I was convinced that on those days, God was really happy with me and he loved me more. And on those days when I was a jerk to everybody, when I didn't care about reading the Bible, when I didn't pray except to complain about something, uh, on my really bad days, I was convinced that God was just perpetually annoyed with me. He was annoyed with me. He loved me a little bit less. Um, That's the impression that I got. And it's sad that the Christian community is what gave me that impression. The one community in all of society that is supposed to trumpet and champion the idea of God's unconditional love for broken people like you and me was convincing me that God's love was actually conditional. You say, I'm, I'm not... I am not the Christian that I ought to be, nor am I the father or the friend or the husband that I should be. I mean, for instance, I wish I could say I do everything for God's glory. I wish I could say that. You know, 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. I mean, how many of you, now think about that, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, Do it all, not partially, do it all perpetually to the glory of God, which means not just external compliance. You have to want from the pit of your soul and the depths of your heart, you have to want to do everything for God's glory all the time, even when you're sleeping, okay? So I wish that I could say I do everything for God's glory. I can't, and neither can you. What I can say is that Jesus' blood covers all of my stupid efforts to glorify myself. Okay, I wish that I could say, for instance, Jesus fully satisfies me. I can't, and neither can you. What I can say is that Jesus fully satisfied God for me. I wish that I could say, I surrender all to Jesus. I can't, and neither can you. What I can say is that Jesus surrendered all for me. That's the gospel. It is about him, who he is, what he's done, his substitutionary work on our behalf. The gospel is not, I will courageously die for Jesus. The gospel, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus compassionately died for me. That's the gospel. Most people assume that Christianity is good advice for good people, but it's not. It's good news for bad people. In fact, God loves and uses bad people because bad people are all that there are. So, for instance, when Jesus says... I have not come for the righteous, but I've come for the sinner. He wasn't saying there are two kinds of people in this world. There are good people who don't, who don't need me, and there are bad people who do. I haven't come for them, I've come for them. That's not what he was saying. When he said, I have not come for the righteous, I've come for the sinner, What he was saying was, there are two kinds of people in this world. There are bad people who think that they're good, and there are bad people who know that they're bad. 
I've come for the bad people who know that they're bad because they're the only ones who will listen to what I have to say. The bad people who think that they're good won't listen to a word I say because they think they're standing on their own two feet, that they don't need me. Um, I tell my story very openly, very transparently, no matter where I go. One of the things the gospel does is it sets you free from caring what other people think about you. It just does. Um, knowing that I am fully loved, fully accepted, fully approved by God sets me free from living my life to get your approval, to get your love, to get your acceptance, and so on and so forth. And so I find that it is tremendously helpful for me to lay all my cards on the table publicly in front of people when I'm asked to share my story, and I tell it, and it can be uncomfortably transparent sometimes. It's raw, it's very real, it's honest, but as a result of me writing about it and talking about it, people end up opening up to me and telling me their own crash and burn stories. So my wife and I hear stories from people all over the world about the way they have crashed and burned themselves, the way they have bottomed out. They, they come to us when life is spiraling out of control. And most of the people I meet these days or talk to these days or hear from these days are people like me, people who live with guilt and shame and regret because of what they've done, people who would do anything to go back in time and make different choices but are plagued knowing that they can't, People who fear that they will never hope again. People who endure the painful void of broken relationships. People who struggle with believing that anybody, even God, could love them because they've screwed up too many times. And even though all of their stories are different, one thing stands out. There's one thing that's the same about all of their stories, and it's this. Sadly, the Christian community, the church, is all too often the scariest place rather than the safest place for fallen people to fall down and broken people to break down. Every single one of these people, whether they have crashed and burned because it's their own fault or whether they've crashed and burned because it's someone else's fault, it doesn't matter. Most of these people, if they are, have been inside the church or inside the Christian community, when life really tanks, they feel abandoned. They feel sidelined. Um, I remember a friend telling me a while back that people inside the Christian community love it when you stand up and tell them that you are a broken person just like they are, that you are a needy person just like they are, that you are a fallen person just like they are. Until you actually do something that broken, needy, fallen people do. And then, out the door. It's sad to me that the Christian community doesn't know what to do with sin. It, it blows my mind. I mean, we are the last institution in all of society that even believes in things like sin and grace and redemption. And when the last institution in society that at least says we believe in sin and grace and redemption and restoration and those sorts of things abandons people when they are at their worst, what does that tell not only the person but the rest of the world? That, I mean, the gospel, grace, it's all lip service. 
It's not actually true. Um, You see, in my opinion, churches that will thrive in any meaningful way going forward will not be castles of purity where only the morally fit feel comfortable, but rather basements of grace where broken sinners are embraced and forgiven. Places where sin does not shock and grace still amazes. Those will be the kinds of churches that will thrive going forward. The rest, the behavioristic ones, the moralistic ones, the ones that are all about do more, try harder, get better, or else, they will die eventually. Um, You see, God is not looking for another Photoshop church with another Photoshop pastor. People see right through Christians who edit their histories. People see right through Christians who deny the reality of their own struggle and who see themselves as examples of morality rather than trophies of grace. People see right through that stuff. Um, people are craving realness and authenticity and transparency and honesty and the courage to acknowledge their struggles and how God's love and grace touch us in those places where we feel the weakest. The gospel sets us free from the pressure to pretend, to wear masks, to act and live as if things are better than they actually are. When you know, when your heart is gripped by the unconditionality of God's love, when your heart is gripped by the outrageousness of God's mercy, that you are fully loved, fully approved, fully accepted, not because of what you do, but because of what Jesus has already done for you. You see, um, God does not love you as you are. The good news of the gospel is so much better than that. God loves you as Jesus is, and that's forever. That is unblemished. That is so much better than simply saying, God loves me as I am. I mean, that sounds good, but he actually does one much better than that. He loves you as Jesus is. This whole thing is riding on the strong shoulders of another, not yours. And when that grips you, you finally, perhaps for the first time, feel the freedom uh, to not pretend, to tell the truth about yourself, to not feel the pressure to always put your best foot forward, to not Photoshop your life, to not manage your reputation in such a way where people only see the good parts, but to actually be honest, to tell the truth. I mean, the world is dying for that, dying for that. Um, People are craving that. So what I remind these people that reach out to me is what I want to tell you, that while we can never go back to a past that we have lost or ruined, we can always go to God always, a God who promises to love and use weak people who fail because there aren't any other kinds of people. God loves and uses weak people who fail because there aren't any other kinds of people. 
Um, I remind them and you that there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Uh, I remind them and you that the sins we can't forget, God chooses not to remember. That's what Hebrews 8.12 tells us. The sins we can't forget, God does not remember. There was an old friend of my grandfather's who went through World War II named Corey Tenboom, and she said that God takes all of our sins, takes them to the deepest part of the ocean, dumps them there, and puts up a sign that says, no fishing allowed. Now, sadly, the Christian community likes to put on scuba gear <laughs> and go diving for it. And they will, but God doesn't. I have a tattoo down this arm with some lines from my favorite hymn, one of my favorite hymns, and it simply says, well, may the accuser roar of sins that I have done. I know them well and thousands more. My God, he knoweth none. Well, may the accuser roar, and he does, and he will. Well, may the accuser roar of sins that I have done. I know them well and thousands more. My God, he knoweth none. You will hold your sins against you. Other people will hold your sins against you. The good news of the gospel is that God does not hold your sins against you. God counted your sins against Christ. That is the gospel. It is good news that it's not about us. It is good news that Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Let me pray for us.